How's everybody doing this morning? Good. Happy Mother's Day. I remember as a boy, one of my favorite activities with my parents was to go to pet stores. And um, I don't know, I, I feel like in the last 10 or 15 years, pet stores have become increasingly less cool. There was just a lot more animals in pet stores when I was a younger guy. And uh, you know what little kids do when they go into pet stores? Uh, they immediately go up to one animal or another, and we say, Dad, Mom, can we have it? Yeah, can I take it home? And uh, my dad tended to say yes probably more often than he ought to because all the animals that I had growing up, it, it was incredible. Um, there was one animal, though, that my mom didn't let us have. It was monkeys, and I'm not sure why that is. Maybe she just didn't like the idea of owning an animal that had the reputation for throwing its own. You get the idea. I particularly, though, enjoyed fish at the pet stores, different shapes, different colors, different sizes, and there was one fish in particular that I loved, the Oscar. Ah, they were big. If you had a nice huge tank with multiple Oscars, they would fill that thing up. The pet store uh, clerk would put the pellets in, and they'd come up and, and slurp all of the pellets. One time we went to the pet store, and my dad, I convinced him, I conned him into letting me take one of those little guys home. It was about this big. I set up a 10-gallon tank. I put the fish in the tank, and I had one purpose in mind. I was going to grow this fish as large as I could possibly get it in as short amount of time as possible. So don't worry, I didn't kill the fish, so you're already going there, I know. I fed it. I cared for it. I would feed it and then come back two hours later and look and ask, why is this thing not growing any quicker than it is? After some time, you know, a month passed, two months passed, three months passed. The fish just seemed to grow to a certain size, and then it, it stopped growing altogether. And so I engaged in a little inquiry. I learned an important principle about fish husbandry. A fish will not grow beyond its enclosure. Here I had this really big fish. It grows large, and I, I stuffed it into a 10-gallon tank. It's kind of like trying to get a sumo wrestler into a Toyota Prius. You know what I'm saying? If I want to see the fish grow, then I must grow its enclosure. Now, I'm convinced that this same principle applies to the spiritual life. Christians are designed to grow you. If you have trusted Christ as your Lord and Savior, are designed to grow into a spiritual giant, to be a man or woman in faith. Indeed, the Bible tells us that God does exceedingly abundantly more than anything that we could ask, think, or imagine. Yet most of us, if we're being honest with ourselves, if we're analyzing our spiritual lives, can say that I have been stunted in my spiritual life at one point or another, maybe even for a long time. I haven't grown to the degree or to the depths that I could or should. Is it possible that our stunted growth has to do with the, ch the tank that we've chosen to swim in? 
I wonder how many of us are swimming in a 10-gallon tank when God wants us in his vast ocean of faith, swimming freely. There's something about that 10-gallon tank that holds us, isn't it? It feels secure. It feels cozy. We know the boundaries of the tank. The vast ocean of God that he wants us to swim in, now that is a little more untamed, uncharted territory. So what are the constraints that we've learned to live with, even enjoyed in our life that is causing some of this spiritual stunting? Well, I've noticed a couple. One is the idea of comfort and ease. Uh, This is when we have fallen into the misconception, the wrong belief system, that the pain-free life is the best sort of life possible. Uh, It's all about avoiding pain. In fact, the greatest fear that a person would have in this sort of life dynamic is that to lose comfort and ease is the worst thing that can happen to me. Do you remember old Isaac? In his advanced years, he had subscribed to this philosophy. It was all about the next tasty morsel. His pursuit of ease caused his soul to become blind. Here's another one. It's a close cousin to comfort and ease, complacency. This is the belief that we have arrived. We say, I don't need to grow anymore because I'm the biggest fish in the pond. I've made it to the top of the ladder. Somehow, I salted away enough money to pay for my kid's college. We might not even come out and say this one spiritually, but we believe that we are humble and that we have grown to a spiritual maturity that others haven't attained Uh, Remember this quote, it's very important. Humility is a strange thing. Once you think you've got it, you've lost it. It's a good one, and it's an important one. Don't forget that. And complacency is not a 10-gallon tank, it's a 5-gallon tank. So here's another one. We have led, uh, or we have become accustomed to open and willful sin. And the Bible is clear on this point. Sin is a poison for the soul. It's, it's less than a five-gallon tank. It's a fish out of water, according to the Bible. Because God is holy. He will not bless open sin. God doesn't fall into some kind of thought pattern that says, well, I know that I've said that this is morally wrong, but it's making them happy, so I guess I'll be okay with it now. That is not a biblical message. That's a cultural message. Listen to the clear words of the Bible. 1 John 1, 5, and 6, God is light, and, and in him there is no darkness at all. If we say we have fellowship with him while we walk in the darkness, we lie and do not practice the truth. Did you hear that about God's character? In him is no darkness at all. He doesn't open himself up to even the slightest bend in his moral will. He doesn't explain immoral choices away. He doesn't have a standard for one time in history, but then further along down the road in history says, oh, that's not my standard anymore. Surprise, I'm changing things. No, the Bible says that he is the, what, same yesterday, today, and forever. But that doesn't mean, don't hear that to mean that God is harsh. He's not harsh. He's incredibly righteous. 
And nothing will kill spiritual growth like a decisive choice to say, I'm going to do what's wrong in the eyes of God. Here's another constraint, shattered dreams. This is when you get stuck emotionally, when you have faced pain or disappointment or serious loss. And it causes us to live in a 10-gallon tank. We, we become convinced that there's no spiritual life beyond this pain that we're living with. We're, we're frozen in a moment of time when the bottom fell out. Another constraint, aging out. This is the belief that I'm past my prime. Because, you know, God only uses youthful energy to accomplish his purposes. He simply does not have use for anyone beyond the age of a retirement because he knows that they've already paid their dues and now he just wants them to enjoy the remainder of their life just in case heaven isn't real. Now, I hope you hear the sarcasm there. This is certainly a lie that many in our culture have adopted. I'm done, I'm finished. There's nothing left for me. Some young person needs to step up and they need to lead because I'm tired. (laughs) End of growth. End of story. Well, the 10-gallon tank is no place to live our lives. Spiritually speaking, you, you were made to swim. You were made to never stop growing. Let me ask you, Are you living in the tank right now? Are you living within the constraints of the tank right now? Now let's talk about your desires. Do you want out? Do you want to never stop growing? Do you want to live in the vast ocean of faith that God has designed for you to swim? Well, this morning, if that is the desire of your heart, then you need to watch closely as we follow the story of one of our old friends, Jacob. Because in the next part of Genesis, we're going to watch this 130 years young man break out of the mold. And he's going to soar in faith as he follows God for the next parts of his life. So as we follow four scenes in Genesis 45 through 47, we're going to see four spiritual principles that will teach us how we can never stop growing. And the first principle is this, remain open to God possibilities. After those tender moments, okay, so we left this story at Genesis 45, verse 8, and uh, Jacob and his brothers, they embrace and they hug, and then Pharaoh catches wind of the fact that Joseph's family is now here in Egypt, and he's going to bring his family back to the land of Egypt to seek shelter during this time of famine. So Pharaoh blesses them with carts and provisions and gifts. Joseph likewise does the same. In Genesis 45, 24, as the brothers are departing to head up back to their father, he gives them this advice, which only a brother could say to other brothers. Don't, what, argue along the way. I like that one. And <laughs> these brothers have gone through significant transformation, but they are somewhat still the same guys. And he knows that if he doesn't say anything as they're about to head out, it's going to sound like the back of my car on a 10-hour journey. Well, Jacob, as all of this is happening down in Egypt, 
likely did not sleep well through the duration of the trip. He trusted God, right? But only because he had to. And he was waiting for Benjamin to return. We pick up the story in verses 25 through 26, and it tells us that his mood quickly changes within him. So they went up out of Egypt and came to the land of Canaan to their father Jacob. And they told him, Joseph is still alive and he's ruler over all the land of Egypt. And his heart became numb. For he did not believe them. That word numb in the Hebrew could also be translated fainted. He heard these words and it brought about such a deep, emotional, visceral reaction that Jacob, at 130, nearly fainted. Now just think about his story for a little bit. Put yourself into his shoes. You know what it's like to have a child that's close to your heart that you love deeply. You remember all those firsts, the first time they smiled, the first time they crawled. Remember that time that they were riding down the road and they fell off their bike and scraped their knee and the first person that they ran to was you, crying for your help. Remember as they aged into those teenage years and yeah, they were complicated years, but there were those brilliant moments where they would come to you and say, Mom, I need your advice. How am I going to work out this situation? Your son's 17 years old, now you send him, and he's on a simple errand. It's not a very complicated errand for this time period. You think that you're going to see him in a couple of days. Your sons are standing outside of your tent. Their heads hung to the ground. They won't even look you in the eye. And you think to yourself, it's odd. Joseph isn't with them. Where is he? You look over at your son Judah and he's holding a garment in his hands and as the garment comes closer to you and they place the garment into your hands, you look down and immediate recognition comes as you see the garment. It is your son's garment. It's covered in blood. It's torn to bits. And the realization comes to your mind, he's gone. My son's dead. He's been torn apart by animals. For the next 22 years, depression pulls you into a deep, dark well. Your once brilliant and bright world that was so full is now just a dull gray. In fact, as you look at the words of Jacob through the story of Joseph in Genesis, after Joseph is presumed dead, Jacob only tends to talk about death. Did you notice that? He was stuck He believed he was finished. I also believe that one of the biggest reasons that Jacob fell into such a deep depression was because that he, like his father before him, had decided who God's next man up should be. He gave Joseph the coat because he believed that all of the promises of God were going to be wrapped up into this son. So what happens when you're holding that bloody cloak and looking at it? Well, you also believe in your heart that the promises of God have evaporated right in your hands. But he was wrong on two fronts, wasn't he? First, Joseph wasn't dead. And secondly, 
He has identified the wrong son. It's the middle child that he's forgotten about. It's Judah that's the son of promise. Now let me ask you a question as you think about Jacob's life and story. Have you ever given up on hope? Have you ever been looking at all of the facts and all of the circumstantial evidence that surrounds you? Maybe you've held that bloody garment in your hand and you've looked out on yourself and you said, all of the God possibilities are gone. This is my life now. You've taken it for granted. You've said in your heart that it's got to be true. Well, maybe like Jacob, it's a depression that's been a dominant feature of your life. Or maybe you've been hurt by someone at some point and you've become convinced that relationships are no longer something that you can trust anymore. Or could it have been that you lost your confidence in God's goodness? You believe that God should have handled a situation differently and when he did not handle it the way you wanted him to, you lost confidence. So here we are, we come back to God again. Because everything always comes back to God. Everything in this life that matters, that moves us, that matures us, has to do with faith in God and faith in his good promises. Old Testament scholar John Stelheimer shares this. He says, throughout the Pentateuch, there is a focus on the response of God's people with regard to the work of God. At important moments in the narrative, the people's response to the work of God is interpreted either as one of faith or no faith. That's the dichotomy, that's the division. This is what the life of faith is about. If God is sovereign and purposeful and good, then we must always be open to hope in his, prov- uh, his, his uh, promises even when the evidence is contradictory. Even if you're holding the garment, even if you've been living under the false assumption for 22 years, because God has promised us hope, He has given us good promises. So that's the tension. Where are you right now? Are you in faith or no faith? Well, Jacob began with no faith. It says that he did not believe, but God awakens the old man's faith with better evidence. If you look there at verses 27 and 28, it tells us, but when they told him all the words of Joseph, which he had said to them, and when he saw the wagons that Joseph had sent to carry him, what does it say? The spirit of their father Jacob revived. And Israel said, it is enough. Joseph, my son, is still alive. I will go and see him before I die. Now, you remember to watch closely Jacob's names in the text, right? I hope you remembered that principle because we see at the beginning of the conversation that he's still Jacob, right? And Jacob is the trickster, the manipulator, the guy who gets things done in his own power, but he doesn't really get things done because it always blows up in his face. That Jacob? And now we see Isaac show up, the covenant name, the name of the man who is convinced of God, who lives by faith. The words of Joseph in the carts 
were just what he needed to be revived and enlivened to the God possibilities. And with the winds of faith behind his sails, he springs up, doesn't he? With a new intensity and says, let's go. Well, the narrator blacks out all of the preparations that must have been pretty involved to get 70 family members down to the land of Egypt. The next scene that we pick up is a scene where Jacob is in a familiar place in the promised land. And the principle that we'll see here is that remember that obedience comes before anything else. So here in um, Genesis 46, and we're actually looking at Genesis 46, 1 to 4, um, verse 1, Genesis 46, 1. So Israel took his journey with all that he had and came to Beersheba and offered sacrifices to the God of his father Isaac. Let's consider the significance of this place. Beersheba, in the geographic land of Israel, was the borderlands of the south part of Israel, just as you were heading into Egypt. And it seems, as we've been following and tracing the story of Genesis, that patriarchs and Egypt just don't mix well together. Okay? You go back to Genesis chapter 12, uh, Abraham flees famine, he goes down to Egypt, and things blow up in his face. Isaac, in Genesis chapter 26, also experiencing famine, starts heading down to Egypt. And right here at the borderlands of Beersheba, God visits him in a dream and says, do not go down to Egypt. And now, like grandfather and father, Jacob is at the boundary lands looking to go. Now consider the tension that Jacob must have been under as he approached the boundary lines. Genesis 45 gives us this idea that this 130-year-old man couldn't get down to Egypt quickly enough, right? (laughs) I'm thinking about his situation and my situation, and I'm saying to myself, if this was one of my children, there would be no law made by human beings that would prevent me from not speeding the entire way down from start to finish. But what what about traffic laws made by God? Were these next steps forbidden for Jacob? Well, the text seems to indicate that Jacob pauses to find out. He stops the rush within his spirit. The rush that wants to be with his son because he understands that to go down to Egypt without God's blessing, even to see his long-lost son, would be a mistake. So here's the principle. Again, obedience comes before anything else. A good conscience before God trumps Jacob's desire to see Joseph. He understands the priority system. He understands that he uh, that the higher priority is obedience to God. Jacob is showing us that Christians grow best when we live the abandoned life. What does that mean? The abandoned life means this, to live in complete surrender to God with complete disregard for everything else. This is the core of what worship is. It is all that we are, loving and obeying 
all that God says, does, and is. This is the right way to live because God is the highest good in the world, which means then that God must be our highest priority. He is a higher priority than your job. He is a higher priority than even your children. He is a higher priority than your family obligations. He's a higher priority than your money. He's a higher priority than even your own happiness. Now, does that mean, now listen closely here, does that mean that obedience to God and family are in opposition to one another? God is not saying, if you love your family, you cannot love me, is he? He is saying, you you must love me first. Then, and only then, will you love your family best. This is how it works. It turns out that if you put your family before God, then you will actually love them in an inferior way. But if you love God first, then your family receives the quality of love that can only come from a person who has prioritized the love of God in their life. You see that. So God's response to Jacob's acts of worship is fascinating. Look at verses 2 to 4 now. God spoke to Israel in visions of night and said, Jacob, Jacob, and he said, here I am. Then he said, I am God, the God of your father. Do not be afraid to go down to Egypt, for there I will make you into a great nation. I myself will go down with you to Egypt, and I will also bring you up again. And Joseph's hands shall close your eyes So it turns out that God does not have an aversion for patriarchs in Egypt. Do you see that right there? In fact, after Jacob's act of worship, God says, go. So there's not this opposition that we've come to believe about God and other priorities in life. It's just about God's timing. It's about God's purposes. You might recall in Genesis 15 that God actually prophesied to Abraham that one of his descendants would spend a significant portion of time down in Egypt. Look at Genesis 15. It's on the screen. Know for certain that your offspring will be sojourners in the land that is not theirs and will be servants there, and they will be afflicted for 400 years. But I will bring judgment on the nation that they serve, and afterward they shall come out with great possession. Now, commentator Bruce Walke shares with us a principle. If you study the Bible, uh, this is a very important principle to understand. What God denies one saint, saint, he may permit to another. God commanded Isaac not to leave the land, but he promises his presence with Jacob out of the land. The interpreter must distinguish between God's universal commands to all saints and his personal commands to what? particular saints. So, here's the idea. Thou shalt not steal. Universal. Joshua, march around Jericho for seven days. Particular. Do you see the difference between the two? If you make Joshua's command universal, you're going to be marching around the wall a long time. But thou shalt not steal is always the command. Now, let's think about the spiritual paradox of Jacob's obedience here. 
When we place ourselves under the constraints of God's leading, we actually find more liberty and freedom because we are able to receive God's presence and his blessing. When we transgress, we find that we're spiritually stunted. And look at how God comes alongside of Jacob. He promises him four things. I will make you a great nation, and indeed he will. They go down 70, 400 years later, they leave Egypt, two million people strong. I will go down to Egypt with you, God's presence accompanies. I will bring you back to Canaan. God will fulfill his promises. Joseph's own hands will close your eyes. That's how the paradox works, friends. Now, we're going to march forward in the text, all right? We are going to bypass the genealogy in Genesis 46, verses 8 through 27 only. I do want to capture that the big idea of this section is that in Genesis chapter 10, God identified to us 70 nations, which was representative of God's heart for the nations. Israel enters into Egypt with 70 descendants. It's God's message is that they have become a microcosm or a nation of blessing to the other nations. He will extend blessing through them. And so already that promise, I will make you a great nation, is being fulfilled as they travel down there. Now let's pick up um, on the emotional reunion. Here's the principle. Relish God's better blessings. So Jacob is now 130 years young, as we've noted, and I'm sure that he never imagined that he would be entering into the land of Egypt. You have to understand that this would have been an eye-popping experience for this country bumpkin who raised sheep off in the wilderness of Canaan. We are in the time period of Egypt where it's about 1876 B.C. This is the Middle Kingdom, the 12th Dynasty, and according to historians, this is Egypt's really big economic build period. Uh, it would have been majestic to walk into the cities and to see the building programs and the vast riches that were represented in Egypt. It was dominant. It was international. It was almost imperial at this point. And to think Joseph's second in command of it all. Yet, the story indicates that the gifts, the grandeur, all of it meant nothing to Jacob compared to the realization that he was about to see his long-lost son. Genesis 20, uh, 46, 28, and 30. He had sent Jacob or Judah ahead of him to Joseph to show the way before him in Goshen. And they came into the land of Goshen. Then Joseph prepared his chariot and went up to meet Israel, his father, in Goshen. He presented himself to him and fell on his neck and wept on his neck a good while. Israel said to Joseph, Now let me die, since I have seen your face and know that you are still alive. I appreciate Alistair Begg's insight into this moment he notes that this hug is the crowning moment of Jacob's pilgrimage. You 
quickly scanned through all the images of his life, all the past failures, all the moments of pain. And here in this moment, in this hug, the, the past sorrows are now forgotten. Maybe the personal responsibility that he carried as he thought about his past misdeeds and now what has befallen Joseph is, is lifted from him. And in this moment, as he hugs his son Joseph, Jacob was given the insight into what matters most in life. Think about all the things he was striving for before this. He fought Esau for the blessing. He was trying to do this big mass build under the, the, uh, the, the eyes of Laban. And then he pours all of his energy into doting upon his favorite sons and I'm going to build up this son and I'm going to make him the son of promise. And then that son's ripped away from him. So he puts a double portion of that doting upon another son. And maybe if he was struggling with other things that we struggle with in old age, he had a bucket list and he was trying to check every box on that. But in this moment we see him finding satisfaction in God's better blessings. Elster Begg, in the same point, noted that he went on a golf outing with three stockbrokers, which sounds like the setup for a bad joke, but I promise you it's not. And uh, as they were heading out, these stockbrokers, um, they, they took pause in the middle of the golf game for some rest and refreshments and He asked them a big question. He said to the brokers, I understand that probably in your profession you work with quite a bit of people of means and wealth. I'm sure that some of these people are interacting with experiences and and possessions that I can only imagine. And they nodded their heads and said, oh yeah, absolutely we are. Uh, Some of the wealth that is wrapped up in some of these individuals is immense. And then beg paused and asked the big question, how many of the people that you work with are satisfied? Long pause. He said in that moment, it looked as if a third grade teacher had just stumped the class with a big question. Their eyes opened up wide. They were contemplative. And to a man, all three of the stockbrokers looked back at Alistair and said, I don't know anyone. Anyone. Did you hear that? Not one? You're telling me out of all these people and all this wealth and all the things they have, surely there must be one, and they look back at him and reply, no. I don't know anyone. There's always a desire for bigger. There's always a desire for better. There's always a desire for more. But Jacob's response is antithetical to that. It rings with satisfaction. Now let me die since I have seen your face and I know that you are still alive. Let me ask you the question, are you satisfied? You can't buy it. You can't earn it. You can't get it through fame. I know with some of the younger people, we think that we're going to get it through experiences, that if if I travel broadly or I have certain experiences happen in my life, then I'm going to be satisfied. And i got to tell you, you don't get it that way either. It is grounded in something far deeper, something eternal. 
Psalm 17, 15 gives us the secret. As for me, I shall behold your face in righteousness. When I awake, I shall be satisfied with your likeness. We live in such a dissatisfied world, don't we? Three stockbrokers struggling to think of one person who is satisfied. And even now, I'm asking you the question, are you satisfied? Well, where does that come from? How do I get it? If I'm dissatisfied, I'm always looking for the bigger, better, more, and that is a constraint, if I've ever heard of a constraint. That is a 10-gallon tank. So the key is, Psalm 17, 15, God is the only source of satisfaction. And all of the things that matter most, all of the blessings that he extends when he's at the center of our world become satisfying when he's involved in the picture. Let's continue to the final scene. This scene brings it all together. Fourth principle, retain your pilgrim status. So they've made preparations and Joseph the good son that he is has made significant preparations himself. We see in Genesis 46, 31 to 34, he coaches the brothers on how to approach the Pharaoh. And he's arranging things so that they can go into the land of Goshen. Now, why is this a good land? Well, first of all, the text tells us that it is the best of all the pasture land. It also tells us that Joseph would be close to the residents of his family. And I think as well as we look at God's mandate upon Israel to be separated from the nations, a particular people unto him, that the land of Goshen would provide this separation from this more fast-paced Egyptian culture so that they don't succumb to the temptations of it. So the brothers follow his orders. And Pharaoh extends to them the best of Egypt, verses 5 and 6. Then Pharaoh said to Joseph, Your father and brothers have come to you. The land of Egypt is before you. Settle your father, your brothers, in the best of the land. And let them settle in the land of Goshen. And if you know any able men among them, put them in charge of my livestock. Now just a brief aside. Um, in this story, Joseph sets the gold standard for how a believer should care for their elderly family. Do you see that? His desire to spoil his elderly father is not a spiritually uh, negative or impulsive thing. It's a spiritually good thing. It's Mother's Day. <laughs> Everybody call their mom, thinking of her, extending appreciation to her, giving to her and caring for her out of the abundance of what you have, or is she somewhere down the list? I mean, we live in a culture today, listen to this, don't, don't lose this side, don't, don't go through the list and the catalogs of reasons why you shouldn't need this particular principle in your world. You need it. We live in a culture today that has forgotten the elderly, that has dismissed them, 
It sought to, to put them off somewhere and forget about them. And I'm not saying that homes are bad. I think there's plenty of instances where that's a great option for people. But you need to be involved in their world and love them. First Timothy says this, If anyone does not provide for his relatives and especially for the members of his household, he has denied the faith and is worse than an unbeliever. All right, I'm getting off of that now. Let's move on. Let's pick up the story. So after the sons receive deed and title to the best of the land, then the spiritual giant, this 130-year-old spiritual boss, approaches Pharaoh, the the most uh, powerful man in the world, meets the only son of promise in the world at this time. As he slowly makes his way up to Pharaoh's throne, the, the great Pharaoh asks the great spiritual giant, how many are the years and days of your life? And Jacob's response must have shocked him. The days of the years of my sojourning are 130. Few and evil have been the days and years of my life. Now this is mind-blowing to the Pharaoh because in their culture, 110 years old was the pinnacle of age. If you made it to that age, you have surely been blessed, and Jacob has exceeded it by 20 years, and he'll go on to live another 17 years beyond it. Yet, he replies, few and evil have been the days of the years of my life. Now, you can understand that from multiple perspectives. The first is, he's not going to live as long as Abraham and Isaac. Abraham, 175. Isaac, 180. We've also seen that there have been immense turmoil, right? Go back and look at the story of Jacob and tell me if you see many moments where there wasn't some kind of drama in the man's world. And it all begins in the moment where he disrespects his father, where he steals the blessing. And it's interesting, it seems that Moses uh, is deliberately contrasting Jacob's words here, few and evil are my days, with a later promise in the book of Deuteronomy that says, the one who honors his father and mother should live long and do well in the land. You see that. However, I think there's one more perspective that is significant here. Jacob refers to his time on earth as a sojourn, which means it's a pilgrimage. Even when he's living in the promised land, Jacob knew that he wasn't home, and certainly he was not going to allow the riches of Egypt to change his mind. Basically, he had a sense, he knew where home was, And out of all of the experiences and journeys that he's been on, he's never found it. He understands that this life pales in comparison to the heavenly life that God is securing for us in eternity. This is the tension we see throughout the Bible. Even though Jacob is settled, he's still searching. He has comfort in things, but those comfort in things never have a hold upon him. And in this passage, this makes him the superior to Pharaoh. The text tells us that Jacob blesses Pharaoh, and Hebrews 7.7 explains, it is beyond dispute that the inferior is blessed by the superior. So friends, 
the ultimate way that we break out of the 10-gallon tank that we swim in the vast ocean of faith is to live in light of eternity. That's how you break the mold. Those who are bound by this earth will find that their growth can only go so far is that time-bound, 120 years maximum life that we have on this earth. And the the wealth that we can build and the experiences that we can build, that is a 10-gallon tank. But when you realize that God did not destine you for 70 to 120 years, but he destined you to outlive the stars. That's when you swim free. That's when you understand how to make decisions in this world and what matters most and and how you walk by faith. Hebrews tells us this. These all died in faith, not having received the things promised, but having seen them and greeted them from afar and having acknowledged that they were strangers and exiles on the earth. For people who speak thus make it clear that they are seeking a homeland. If they had been thinking of that land from which they had gone out, they would have had the opportunity to return. But as it is, they desire a better country. That is a heavenly one. Therefore, God is not ashamed to be called their God, for he has prepared for them a city. Do thoughts of heaven make you yearn for home? What is your biggest fear? To lose earth or to lose heaven? Well, let's wrap it all up. We've seen these four principles, principles that will teach us how to never stop growing. The first is that if we remain open to the God possibilities, we should remain open. Just because it appears that our dreams are shattered, it doesn't mean that God has decided that they are. Secondly, remember that obedience comes before anything. Well, obedience is not opposition to the good things of life. Obedience is the higher ideal. Third, relish God's better blessings. The key to the life of faith is to find your deepest satisfaction in what matters most. And fourth, retain your pilgrim status. Don't hold on to this earth so tightly that you are bound to it. Live in light of eternity. Friends, that's how you get out of the tank So my hope for each of you is the big principle. Never stop growing. Never stop. You're never too old. You're never too broken. You're never too far gone from God. Never stop growing. Would you bow your heads with me in a word of prayer?